0: This is the world of Salesforce and Dropbox, HubSpot and Evernote, a world unthinkable without cloud software services. Most businesses and consumers use SaaS every day to get work done. Driven by the internet and ever-expanding availability of bandwidth, SaaS has come to dominate our lives in a very short span of time. But developing a defining service, often ahead of its time, getting users to engage, secure funding, protect IP, and building a truly remarkable and successful SaaS is not an easy task. SaaS Stories brings conversations with the dreamers and visionaries who dared to think ahead, how they built their SaaS, genesis, struggles, trials, tribulations, and eventually, success. Welcome to SAS Stories. Thank you for your time and for joining us in this session. I have a favor to ask. While you continue to listen to the podcast, please leave a comment or rating at iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I personally look at each comment and will give you a shout out to each of you in our following episodes. It means a lot to hear from you. Welcome to this episode of SaaS Stories. B2B sales is broken at many places. Nowhere is it more evident than the very low rate of conversions. CRM is stagnating, to say the least. We caught up with Abhijit Vijay Vargia, co-founder and CEO at Nectar.ai, where he is reimagining the future of B2B sales.
1: So I think number one pain point was that not every rep was getting successful. And I was uh, talking to a lot of sales leaders, um, a lot of other uh, VP sales in the community um and everybody had the same problem that okay there are a few of my folks who do really well but there's a big a- cohort of sales people who are struggling and then there is a bottom workforce which needs to be replenished you you uh, either they voluntarily churn or you have to let them go and then get new people in and this whole cost of like changing sales people and then getting new people on board getting them trained getting them coached time to ramp, time to productivity is it, is very hard a lot of like time effort and money goes into it and then you if you add the missed quota so a bad sales hire would typically cost an organization anywhere between 1.2 to 1.5 million dollars
0: abhijit went through a seed to scale hyper growth experience at capillary technologies which is one of the earliest SaaS success stories from asia he was a board member and managing director for its apac business and global accounts While at Capillary, he specialized in creating global GTM growth strategy and execution, building and scaling high-performance SaaS sales teams, and delivering hyper-growth. In 2020, he started his new venture, Nectar.ai, where he is reimagining the future of B2B sales. The company is fully remote, venture-funded, and is currently in stealth mode. He is a chemical engineer and an alumnus from IIT Kharagpur, and spent the early part of his career in the clean energy sector before moving to SaaS. He was ranked 3rd in the Top 80 Emerging Business Leaders in Asia in the Portfolio Singapore magazine. Abhijit is one of the most sought-after SaaS sales leaders in Asia, an advisor to many startups and an angel investor. Now, on to this insightful episode of SaaS Stories with Abhijit Vijayvarghia. Abhijit, welcome to SaaS Stories. Uh, I think it will be a very interesting uh, chat and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Thank you for joining in.
1: Thank you for having me over Subhanjan, uh, I'm looking forward to the chat and sharing my experience with you the, uh, and your audience as well.
0: Great, so I'll, I'll go a little back in your background, I mean you are, you are a chemical engineer from Khadakpur. you went to L&T, how did you transition from that into consulting and, and what happened thereafter which brought you to Capillary?
1: Yeah. So uh, as you pointed out, um, I'm a chemical engineer. I went to IIT Kharagpur, um, and then in 2007, I had a few options: either go into IT, which most of my batchmates were going into, or going into consulting, go for an MBA, or uh, actually try something what I studied. Um, so I wanted to uh, do that. Um, use the chemical engineering that I'd learned for four years. So, I joined Larson and Tubro, which is a, a pretty big conglomerate in India. Um, joined their heavy engineering division. Um, and interestingly, within that unit, they had a new business initiatives vertical, uh, which was trying to launch a new product line. Um, and they wanted to get into an, uh, the alternative energy segment. So, climate tech is uh, anyway big and getting bigger as we speak. So, this was like 2007. Uh, Early days, this was before I think Tesla got started um, and before uh, Renewable energy was sexy. Um, So uh, the idea behind uh, the new product line was to see if we can come up with some kind of a new product which caters into the whole alternative energy theme. So it was a very interesting uh, project and role that I got. Um, I spent three years there, um, largely looking at what are the possible paths we could take. Because there's so many different ways you can like look at energy in general beyond oil or, or the conventional sources of energy. So we went uh, through the route of uh, hydrogen. Because once you burn hydrogen, um, you get water vapor, right? H2 plus O2 gives you H2O. Um, so we're quite keen to see how that can be commercially used in automobiles. Um, so that was the path we took. I mean, that was like first principles, blue ocean thinking. Um, now, there onwards, how do you like commercially produce hydrogen? How do you handle it as a fuel? And how do you go about creating the whole hydrogen economy uh, in the ecosystem to make it viable? So it was starting from first principles to figuring out technology, uh, the whole go-to-market strategy, what would be the role um, the company would play, what could be the product that would look like, who are the other collaborators and partners in the ecosystem, what do we need? At a government level, what kind of uh, lobbying we would need to do uh, in order for this to make sense at a national level. Um, So a lot of those um, aspects of business that played out, which really formulated my entrepreneurial roots. So while it was a larger conglomerate, but I was lucky enough to get um, into a new business unit where uh, the team was hustling like a startup. So it was more like an entrepreneurial in residence kind of a role where I really learned a lot. We made a good prototype. I mean, we actually worked on um, using the commercial scale autothermal reforming as a technology, which is used in uh, oil refineries, where there's a hydrogen generation unit, which is uh, pretty big. um, And you basically generate hydrogen on the site using natural gas. um, And then you use that hydrogen uh, for the downstream uh, processing of hydrocarbons. Um, so we, we looked at that technology, uh, that how autothermal reforming was doing, and can we build an autothermal rea- reactor of smaller size? Think of it like a natural gas station um, in any of the fuel stations in India. And at that fuel station, could we accommodate a small, portable, skid-mounted uh, hydrogen generation unit? So that's how we like went about doing it, that, okay, let's solve the problem of generating hydrogen at a smaller scale. And then we'll figure out other ways of how that can be used in, into the fuels and, and, and things around it. So we went with that. We we needed um, the process, uh, which was patented by a company in U.S. We also needed um, a particular uh, blend of fuel, uh, which basically uh, is called hythane. So that's like hydrogen getting combined with uh, natural gas in a particular ratio that Fuel could be then used, which was more stable because hydrogen alone cannot be used into automobiles directly. It's not very stable and it's very dangerous to use. So we then basically did a lot of this work. So there's a company in Australia which we had to acquire. There was a, uh, a company uh, in US with which we had to do a joint venture. So a lot of that work happened, which again gave me a lot of uh, interesting insights into like the overall go-to-market. So there was the product thinking, then there was the whole broader grow to market ecosystem thinking and then it was about how do you create partnership uh, in place? Like, we needed automobile lobby to like modify their engines to take the new fuel. We needed the oil marketing companies to help us with distribution, and we needed like approvals from government uh, and energy uh, and oil ministry to have the new fuel accepted and the whole hydrogen economy to start. So we, I was also lucky to be part of Hydrogen Association of India, which was the founding committee and body which started some of this work back in 2008. Um, so I enjoyed like a, a great time working on something very interesting, um, something which would make a lot of sense for climate and uh, which was cutting edge new. Um, so we did a lot of experiments. We came up with a prototype, which was quite successful. It's still running in a, uh, in a, at a natural gas station in Mumbai. Uh, I do visit it whenever, whenever I go to Mumbai. Uh, it's basically in Moulin. Um And then um, one roadblock that happened was uh, largely the whole, commercial viability and acceptance, right? I mean, it was still a fuel that was more expensive than its counterparts. So you need like uh, it to be subsidized, to be accepted. While it is a cleaner fuel, there's no lower NOx and SOx emissions, but uh, we ran into some of these issues around like the commercial viability and then the broader uh, ecosystem where automobile lobby should step up and also modify their engines. The oil marketing companies need to support, and in general, like I think that's so too many moving parts um, and regulatory uh, hassles. So I just realized that uh, in my lifespan, I might not be able to make a meaningful progress uh, into this, and I would want to go into something more fast-moving. So that was a point in time where I wanted to contemplate on what I could do next, and uh, that's when I was looking at how the world was changing, and I did a big, uh, a, a small cons- consulting gig soon after LNT and. While I was doing that, I was thinking through what are the opportunities in front of uh, us. Um, and cloud seemed very interesting. I just heard about Salesforce, I'd, I'd heard heard about uh, Amazon, uh, how their uh, technology was scaling up, e commerce. Um, so there's just like new things that were happening. So this is phones, like 2010, 2011, 2012. 2010, 2011, yeah, yeah. It is around that. So smartphones were like another interesting addition to the mix. So just looking at the trends around around us, and um, I think software as a service caught my attention. But how SaaS could could make it, uh, I mean, could democratize access to premium software, right? I mean, otherwise it was all limited to like bigger companies investing a lot of money in implementing uh, a, a big software solution. A lot of customization is needed, training is needed for the staff and everything. A lot of money goes into maintenance later later on, and. Uh, i mean not everybody could could use uh, the software before um, but then saas opened a lot of possibilities you could try um, i mean especially offered on the cloud it's it's easy to implement you can like implement at smaller scale then pay as you grow um, and their whole subscription model by def- definition makes everybody more productive and accountable um, that it's not like you sold something and you then basically are locked for 5 years you have to like keep adding value and keep delivering a good solution in order to like get your client to continue with you. So I, I really like the whole model and then how uh, the approach um, changed with SaaS getting introduced into the into the overall business enterprise space. Um, so I, I, I wanted to get into that. Um, and that, that was a time where like, a couple of uh, folks from my college uh, who started Capillary Technologies. Um, it was like one of the first few SaaS startups out of the country. Um, so I joined them um, and at that time I was into customer success. Um, they had started seeing some sort of a product market fit um, and um, I was liking what they were doing largely as a consumer. Um, it made a lot of sense um, and then I I felt I want to be part of it. It just is the right amalgamation, people I trust, um, the technology I like and the space as a consumer I feel uh, uh, that anybody will benefit from. So, so I joined what him. was
0: Capillary doing actually? What was the what were they focused on primarily?
1: So, we were largely looking at uh, retail uh, as an ecosystem because retail was growing at a 35% kegger year-on-year uh, around 2011. And uh, feature phones were getting, uh, uh, I mean, they were very popular, they were going deeper, but smartphones were getting introduced. Um, so, what it meant was that you had like, uh, I mean, there was a scenario where everybody would have mobile. I mean, we probably could see that. That's that time will come very soon um, that almost everybody in the country will have mobile phone. And that becomes a very interesting uh, thing uh, if you look at um, in general consumer brands, right? I mean, they issue loyalty cards to the consumers and there used to be a lot of paper cards or like physical cards that people used to carry. And a lot of time you'll not remember your uh, card number or they're like too many cards in your wallet. So you'll drop a few, but mobile number, everybody remembers, right? So it's a 10 digit unique number it could register a customer into a program uh, it's also a number you can communicate on you can do sms or uh, later on whatsapp happened um, and then basically it, it can actually improve the data capture problem which retailers used to face so we actually created a retail based uh, crm solution which would largely help retail con- retail businesses engage with their consumers so help capture more data and then use that data to drive customers back into the store and then use that intelligence to run more targeted marketing campaigns uh, and loyalty programs so that was like the concept so i quite like retail as a space it was growing and then the whole use of mobile number as a as a unique identifier was a very smart move and we were the first ones to introduce that into the country so i did initially customer success and then moved into product uh, for a brief period just to like give more inputs around what i was learning from customers on how they were using the product and then uh, uh moved into sales because we we saw product market fit we were growing so somebody had to sell the product founding team was selling and i just uh, started helping them yeah one thing led to other and then i accidentally moved into sales which was i think the best thing that happened to me in 2013 and since then there's no looking back from 2013 until 2019 uh end of 2019 when i was there at capillary uh, we grew the business from a seed to scale Um, probably running the business around 18 plus countries, uh, mostly Asia, because we're looking at markets which are big for retail and growing, uh, offline retail, and um, yeah, over 50-member quota-carrying sales team that I was managing concretely across multiple countries. Uh, We used to take 150 flights a year, so very different times now. Uh, I've not taken a flight for... (laughs) for more than a year. Uh, but yeah, I used to take 150 flights a year until 2019. So it was a lot of fun uh, in scaling the business, came with its own ups and downs, but a lot of learning in place. Uh, and it, this was where uh, I spent a lot of time on sales productivity, hiring salespeople, ramping them, scaling them, then also bringing predictability into the whole, um, specifically uh, science and art of selling, right? So art is what everybody talks about. Science is what we we like to um, have more and more into sales. Um, so trying to introduce more process, trying to introduce more structure. So I myself dealt with like a, a lot of pain points, um, both as an account executive, as a sales manager, as a first time sales manager, then as a, a VP of sales. Um, so a lot of learning um, and a lot of hardships, uh, which led me to keep thinking on, uh, on what you can do to make the life of salespeople better. Um, so I, I did a lot of things uh, in terms of technology introductions, uh, process, implementation, training, coaching. Um, but I just felt that there could be like a broader intervention technology could do. And uh, I tried looking at a lot of tools. So 2018 to 2019, I looked at a lot of tools, um, both as a user, as a buyer, I realized that there, uh, the tools that were there were not helping with some of these pain points that I was facing. So I decided to go deeper, spend my time understanding uh, the space. And I realized that globally, a lot of salespeople are struggling. Right? Uh, Forbes came up with, a, with an industry research report in 2019, which was like a big decision point for me. That 57% of account executives globally missed their numbers. Um, that was in 2019. Um, then later on, CSO Insights uh, published another report, which I think the number was around 44 or 48%. And there's a bunch of this data point that got published by like very respectable um, uh, forums. And uh, largely everybody is talking about that a big portion of a uh, workforce misses their uh, quota and largely the sales teams. So just wanted to see what is the reason behind it and how technology can improve or change that. Um, so the mission that I wanted to then embark upon was uh, can we democratize quota attainment? Why sales success uh, should be limited to like a few rock stars in the company, or why a company should get, go into a feast or famine situation when some large deals are closing, you've you, you done your quarter or you're overachieved. And uh, when you lose those, then you basically have, um, have a struggle going on. And how do you like get more predictable? So, some of those uh, thoughts um, started weighing down. Um, I decided to do something about it and then like kickstarted Nectar.ai in 2020, um, February 2020. And that's when the whole COVID situation started unfolding, uh, which basically brought on a very new problem statement in front of us as we're thinking through it um, in terms of the, the whole world of sales was say, changing, selling and buying moved remote. Um, and um, the very different challenges now the sellers are facing and there very very different expectations buyers started having from sellers. Um, so which made the problem statement even more interesting that how do you further deliver productivity i mean which is anyway hard in in b2b sales how do you then deliver it into a remote or distributed workforce um yeah. so that that became an even more interesting problem to solve uh, so we actually quite uh, happy that we started the company in 2020 because mm. it's one of those watershed moments that you can call um, okay. where uh, you can take a very interesting perspectives and make interesting bets yeah so so
0: before we uh, sort of Talk about the impact or the change in thought process that COVID uh, brought in. Uh, in 2019, when you were sort of contemplating this new product or the need for intervention, what were the typical pain points that you are seeing repeated across geographies and across uh,
1: various industries for the sales uh, uh, profession? Yeah. So, I think number one pain point was that not every rep was getting successful. Right. So, that was coming out very clearly. They like... And I was uh, talking to a lot of sales leaders, um, a lot of other uh, VP sales in the community, um, and everybody had the same problem that, okay, there are a few of my folks who do really well, but there's a big a- cohort of salespeople who are struggling. And then there is a bottom workforce which needs to be replenished. You you uh, Either they voluntarily churn or you have to let them go and then get new people in. Um, so that continued to happen, right? And, and this whole cost of like changing salespeople and then getting new people... On board, getting them trained, getting them coached, time to ramp, time to productivity is it, very hard. A lot of like time, effort, and money goes into it. And then you, if you add the missed quota, so a bad sales hire would typically cost an organization anywhere between $1.2 to $1.5 million um, in terms of the salary and the quota that gets missed out and the associated costs around it. So, And then especially for hyper-growth companies, you don't even get that time back. Uh, right, you timing is more important than um, than, uh, uh, than anything else. So that was one problem that was coming out. That how do you like make more people successful in the organization? Um, so most companies would probably raise more funding, and then they'll throw money at the problem by hiring extra sales capacity, uh, um, and that would probably take them home. But that's not very capital efficient. Um, so your cost of sales, etc., keeps going up. And uh, you need to then further have more management layers to like manage a bigger force and all. So sales productivity was like primarily a big, big pain point on how do you like improve the yield out of the sales team that you've got. Um, So that was one. Um, Second was with respect to the coaching side of things, right? I mean, I've personally been a salesperson. I've learned on the job. And most salespeople I've spoken to, they all learn on the job. The most first line managers, also learned on the job, right? There's no formal, we don't teach sales in universities and colleges, right? I mean, we learned it on the job. Um, Then we don't teach sales management in in colleges again, right? We learned it on the job, and most of the sales managers were like good account executives who became sales managers later on. Um, So they were coached or trained in a particular way, they just follow the same thing, which is largely going on a Monday call, asking about Tell me about that deal. Tell me about how much you're going to deliver this quarter, and it's it's basically um, a conversation which uh, later on results into interrogation, um, and which is not like very healthy as well in terms of uh, the peer-to-peer interaction or the or the team productivity or morale as well. Um, so the point I'm trying to make is uh, how you can probably systematize the culture of coaching. Right? How do you get? Uh, the coaching experience uh, better, both for the first-time manager and and the AE. Uh, the third problem we looked at was um, the visibility into the ground truth. Now, CRM is going to be the core system of record, right? I mean, it's supposed to hold all the data. Unfortunately, the big pain point there is that nobody likes to update CRM. I mean, you'll not find any single salesperson who says, I, I enjoy working on CRM you'll hardly find anybody. I mean, for any other SaaS tool or any other tool, you will at least find one user who's happy. But CRM would be the only tool out there where no user of theirs, uh, and the user here I'm talking about is account executive, would would say that they like working on it, right? I mean, it's forced upon them. So either there's a stick or carrot, but they, up, they updated CRM because they have to. It's not that they get anything in return. So that was the third pain point that, you're basically making a salesperson do a lot of effort, a lot of work, um, and in return, that is not helping them achieve or attain any core KPIs. What it just ends up happening is give more visibility into the leadership. So, there are two points that are coming out. Leadership needs visibility into the ground truth, and the salesperson needs to provide data to give that visibility. And there's a big friction point. So, that these were like two other pain points that originated. At. How do you still provide visibility to the leadership that they need and at the same time how do you make it easier for the salesperson to be able to provide the data that they need to provide in a hassle-free automated manner, at the same time get the right input or insights they need from the system to do their job better, which is like closing more deals and meeting their numbers. So we just narrowed down on some of these points and then just wanted to look at this holistically from a Uh, The modern future of work that's there in front of us where the teams are further distributed. You can't do like a ride along in a car and your VP sales or manager coaches you um, or you can't do a trip together anymore with your manager or manager is not able to do like the business trip or field visit where they can like meet all the customers, meet all the salespeople, get to know the pulse of every deal, get to know the pulse of every salesperson. Everything has to happen remotely. Everything is happening digitally Um, The good thing is a lot of data is getting generated, which was not there before. A lot of informal data is getting digitally captured. But uh, the big problem is that it's further creating a lot of data silos. And the whole problem of updating CRM is becoming even more paramount, right? So some very interesting things started unfolding as we uh, started looking at uh, the future of work as well, which is in front of us.
0: It's time for a short break. Abhijit was explaining how the sales process has gone digital and remote. I asked him, in the light of the fact that remote organizations are not really new, Basecamp and Zapier cases in point, what is COVID doing to this trend which is now undeniably mainstream? We will listen to Abhijit's take as we come back from the break. Stay with us. You are listening to a business podcast network original. Podcasting is the fastest growing content marketing opportunity which is untapped. We can help you craft your audio strategy and help leverage the wide-reach and easy streaming capability that the smartphone penetration provides. It is easy, it is powerful and personal. Talk to us to find out how podcasting can help you build your brand and reach out to your targets like never before. Write to us at bpn at bizcast.in That is bpn at bizcast.in C-A-S-T dot Business Podcast Network. Podcasts end to end. Welcome back. I'm Shubhan Sarkar, your host for SaaS Stories and founder of Pitchling, the buyer-seller engagement platform. Right before the break, I asked Abhijit, what was the impact of COVID on the trend of going remote, especially on sales teams? Listen in. As we know that remote work is nothing new. I mean, this was sort of in the making, uh, Zapier being successful or Basecamp, uh, Jason Fried wrote the book on being remote, working remote many, many years back. It has nothing to do with COVID, but what COVID definitely did was accelerate that process. So what kind of changes did you see uh, to this analysis that you had COVID bring in? Is it just saying, okay, this has to be done faster or was, was there other dimensions which came in?
1: I think the the biggest dimension that came in is that how do you bring all of this data together and how do you improve collaboration? I think data and collaboration came out as the biggest drivers in terms of value creation, right? I mean, how do you like uh, plug the missing data because CRM will never be fully complete, right? I mean, people will not update it. Um, and the second point is collaboration, right? I mean, as as a seller, I need to collaborate with my my manager, my pre-sales person, my marketing person, my SDR my customer success person. Um, at the same time, I need to also collaborate with my buyer. So my buyer is also digital and remote, right? So there's no more wine and dine that's happening. So how do I like professionally engage with my buyer, get them the value that they need, um, get them to get the confidence around how their pain points could get addressed by my solution? Uh, and how do I na- navigate the buyer buying uh, uh, side of equation, right? So. The buying committee. Uh, how do I like navigate and uh, and meet everybody or cover all the objections? So it, it started unfolding a lot of like different set of problems, right? I mean they all. I mean it's nothing new, but the way it's to be done, right? In a in a remote setting, made a lot of difference. And uh, finally, I think data once captured, connected, uh, and captured, can can be uh, can be very meaningful in. Eliminating uh, the path for everybody involved, right? whether it's buyer to get the right uh, confidence, um, AE to probably uh, get the right help they need in coaching uh, their buyer and getting coached to sell better and for manager to be able to get the timely intervention risk and, and signals about how their quarter could look like rather than uh, how the, their quarter went typically we would get into like a post-mortem of lost uh, lost one analysis is very common in a QBR but can instead of doing that can you like proactively look at your leading indicators and and take a call on what preventive action you can take um, to avoid a future situation yeah
0: so as you are planning a nectar i mean obviously both these two pieces that you're talking of collaboration and coaching has seen a huge growth in terms of these independent spaces, whether you're talking of products like Gong and Chorus and so on, which are essentially sort of plugged into that space uh, and, and a bunch others. And on the other hand, in collaboration products like Slack, which was like ubiquitous and they were adding the outside company portions and all that. How, how did you think that Nectar as you were designing it at that point of time would, would do it one better or, or uh, do it differently, which will make more sense?
1: Yeah, so I think collaboration and data-driven coaching, these are the two important pillars that I believe are are important. Um, so the way we look at it is um, you need to, I mean, I, I don't look at competi- competition or I don't look at what exists in the market today. What I focus on is uh, what is the pain point of my target customer or, or my buyer uh, or, or the user of my product. Um, so we, we go with that angle and what are they struggling today and what we can help them with. I think that gives better answers uh, than looking at what... Obviously, I mean, it's important to look at the landscape, Um, but I think the most important thing one needs to do when you're building a product, is SaaS product, is uh, looking at uh, who's your uh, user, uh, what are their problems, Um, what is the cost of not solving uh, those problems today, Uh, why they're not able to solve those uh, problems, and what's stopping them in solving those problems today or tomorrow. Um, so you you spend a lot of time in those first principles thinking um, understand uh, these with your users very closely um, so we we realize that um, there's increasing need to build it more bottoms up than top down there are a lot of products that exist for the VP sales or the sales leadership uh, when you look at just the basic collaboration between let's say the SDR and the account executive I mean it's as you mentioned they'll probably do it on slack or whatsapp or just a call um, like that right uh, Or I think uh, on the buyers buyer seller side of it, right? I think uh, the companies uh, um, like PitchLink, right? I mean, you guys are doing a good job there. There, I think other interesting products coming out in this space. Uh, How do you uh, make that better, right? So we started looking at uh, specific pain points here, and one pain point that came out to us from a AE standpoint was that um, they don't like updating Salesforce. Right? So one clear answer, Every, anytime I go and talk to any As, I mean, they just like hate CRM and they don't want to update it. So that keeps coming up in conversations. Uh, with managers, it's all about that I, my team is spread out. I don't know what they're up to. Um, while I have some data in CRM, it's not reliable. I'm using certain tools, they give me partial visibility. How do I know like at the right time, I can be there with my salesperson to guide them? Uh, so not just coach uh, retrospectively on what you did on that call or how many times this competitor came name came and how I could have handled objection, but be there when it is happening, or be there before the meeting and guide them that this is what you should be doing. Right? I mean, think of it like sports, right? Where you have a coach which, who is not I know obviously you do post match analysis, but you also do a lot of pre match coaching First and uh-huh. during the match coaching that that really swings the game. So can you bring that parallel into sales? So that's how I'm approaching it. And finally, for doing all of this, the most professional and successful teams would use a lot of data um, and uh, they will do a lot of collaboration uh, before, during and after the match. And that's what you can do in sales as well. So how do you bring all of that data together and then drive a better collaboration? Once you do that, I think productivity is bound to happen. Um, then you're talking about use cases that you uh, handle, right? I mean, Whether the use case is about ramping a salesperson or use case is about forecasting your next quarter or it's use case about your revenue intelligence, um, then they all become use cases. But fundamentally, what you're trying to look at is that making your salespeople here uh, become better at their job, solving their pain points and then driving the missing uh, piece of the jigsaw puzzle, which I believe is... uh, data and collaboration the good thing is in the remote work environment we've already started collaborating a lot more than we used to and we also started generating a lot of digital data which didn't exist before but the pain today is the connecting the the dots bringing all of this together because there are like so many different silos that exist across the revenue function uh, in terms of tools in terms of data in terms of like uh, process so how do you like connect everything together? and uh, guide this. So the way we, we visualize our solution at Nectar is that we're going to build a, an industry first go-to-market data platform that uh, connects uh, the siloed tools and uh, missing data, missing digital data for the modern revenue teams um, and bringing it together, uh, connecting it to their playbooks and uh, then boosting the collaboration and productivity. Uh, with the help of leading indicators rather than just uh, giving them a postmortem of what happened right? Uh, I'm a big believer on managing by leading indicators and uh, I think at leadership level that happens uh, where the VP sales or the CEOs would look at leading indicators. but uh, if you bring in the same experience for the SDR or the account executive or the marketer or uh, or the sales manager, I think it can do wonders. So going bottoms, bottoms up and then bringing out uh, the collaboration and, and data uh, for today's modern sales process.
0: Yeah. I know that you are in a private beta right now so you are essentially getting uh, accounts which are willing to give you feedback and, and test it out and so on. This phase according to you is going to continue for the rest of the year uh, before you take it to market next year. What are your typical channels of go-to-market that you are considering or testing out today?
1: So, um, today we are not like uh, actively selling the product. I mean, when we started the company, we really wanted to work closely with like some key users uh, who come from our ideal customer profile um, and just spend a lot of time with them, understanding their daily workflow, their week, their month, their quarter, um, understanding their workflow on how they're, like collaborating at a downstream level, where 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 are the pain points that are emerging, how are they managing their tasks, how are they managing their follow-ups, or how are they managing their uh, weekly cadence, uh, things like those, right? So that, that involves a lot of discovery, that involves sure. a lot of uh, deep work um, with our users, and that's what we did in the first few months as we started. We also spent a lot of time understanding the macro uh, in terms of how it was unfolding due to COVID, uh, how the whole buying selling experience was changing. People were not traveling, so mobile is not getting used, but people have started moving back to desktop. Um, There are other tools which are improving in adoption, like for example, Zoom and Slack, both their adoption went up. So a lot of those things also came out in our research. So 2020 was a year for us to do a lot of customer discovery um, and validating the problem statement. Um, and then nailing down on what problem to solve. So at this point
0: you had no you had no product to offer them you were had, you had just sort of
1: it was an alpha product we had created alpha. an alpha product okay. mock-ups okay. which we are like showing okay. to them so we are okay. like uh, talking to a lot of users and how many how many companies address, were you
0: talking to? Sorry
1: uh, we would have spoken to over 100 plus companies okay. across different markets uh, in US Europe, Australia, Southeast Asia, India huh. uh, over 150 plus uh, chief revenue officers slash VP sales Hmm. Uh, probably some 75 odd account executives 50 odd uh, first line managers we spoke to a lot of people
0: right Uh, and how many of them were you deciding to give the alpha product to test it so that you can get more of them
1: to, okay. to a few of them, not, hmm. not to all. I mean, the idea okay. here was not to sell and just understand sure. their pain point and sure, then validate sure. some of the hypothesis we had. Sure. 2021 was when we created a beta product. I mean, okay. early Feb, uh, Feb of 2021, when we created a beta product, this is the problem statement that we had. And then we started uh, offering to some of our early adopters because during the course of our interactions, we identified there were some really good design partners that we could like work with. Uh, We we could truly spend a lot of time with us in iterating on the product experience, iterating on uh, the core use cases that we wanted to solve for. And that's what we did, right? So between Feb to June, we spent a lot of time working with these design partners in really improving our product experience and then solving a real problem. And uh, all our design partners uh, fully validated it. Um, and signed uh, contracts uh, multi-year contracts with us. So that's happened. Now the next stage of the company's journey is moving from design partners. So it's a modern GTM process that we are like taking, uh, which is slightly different than the conventional. So from design partners now we are moving to early adopters. So idea is to like go and work with the next set of early adopters would uh, spend time with us but who also are not okay with like a buggy product but they want more functional product, right? So you need to definitely have some more maturity in the product. So we are there now to offer this to our early adopters. And that's what we started doing. And then the next set of work that we'll be doing would be with uh, like a general ability launch and then offering it to the early majority, right? I mean, once you launch in the market, there'll be some early majority that will come up and look into your product. And then later on, you will start offering it to everyone, which includes your later late adopters as well, right? So. So, that's how we'll go about doing sure. it. Uh, yeah.
0: So, so th- this design partners came out of the outreach that you had done already?
1: Yeah, a combination of outreach uh, uh, and the network we had. Right. Like folks who were quite interested in what we are doing. Hmm. So, there were hmm. a lot of well-wishers and uh, folks in the network who sure. wanted to be part of it. So, we had like a good mix of uh, people, users who were like hmm. uh, meaningful enough hmm. and uh, who were having a real pain point. We did not do any free pilots. I mean, uh, we were always clear will only work with customers who want to solve a particular pain point as of yesterday hmm. and they would uh, be willing to put money on the table so that was our criteria as well that let's okay. not work with anybody who cannot put money on the table to solve this problem that means their problem is not relevant enough or important or, enough right? I mean, yeah intense so, enough, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so how many design partners did you end up working with so we had like close to a dozen okay. uh, design partners, um, mm-hmm. largely which we shortlisted and so we worked with uh, a few of them. Um, and then now idea is to like work with more early adopters, so mm-hmm. probably go to like, let's say, uh, how quickly we can work with, uh, let's say, 25 to 50 early adopters. Mm-hmm. Get them really successful um, with the product, validate and repeat. Mm. Um, the experience right? Um, also I mean uh, uh, as a startup when you, so you start building a product a lot of things you do in a scrappy way right I mean you mm. do things that break in fact Y Combinator and some of the other accelerators teach you to do that and which is very efficient and the right thing to do that, because initially you need faster iterations validations and once you hit gold then you double down on it and then that's when you start investing into building a full-fledged product right so, um, so we also did the same thing and as we uh, continue to dig interesting use cases we productize them right so twenty twenty one also gives us more time to productize and um, scale our backend um, so that once we launch it for general ability we should be able to like offer a, not just a very high feature rich product which solves pain points but also a very stable robust product which scales Fair as on. well yeah. what are the typical size uh, you know size of these
0: deals that you have done already These multi year deals that you have uh, so,
1: we, we have mid-market companies as focus, so it's a typical uh, mid-market segment deal values that we we'll look at. Yeah. So, so, which is like 10K to
0: 20K or it's more than that per annum? So, the typical
1: mid-market deal values, industry deal values for SaaS would be anywhere between 10 to 50K. Yeah.
0: PRRs. Yeah.
1: So, it's the same thing.
0: And when you yeah. go, to, go to the market, your pricing will be will be similar or do you intend to sort of have a little higher, sort of push it up a... Bit more.
1: So we, we definitely offered uh, some discount to our early access customers, mm. uh, largely to obviously I mean give back something in return for the trust that they are putting in right. on an early product. Uh, but yeah, when you offer it for general ability, the price would be slightly different. Sure. Yeah. And it these is are like the price. Yeah. Sorry. And these are
0: like twenty to fifty salespeople each who are on the platform. Is, will that be a right
1: assumption for a typical client of ours? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we, we go for the mid-market companies, right? right? So again, yeah. those are like anywhere between let's say five hundred to two thousand employees hmm. would be the the right segment. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but in terms of the the users will be your sales guys,
1: right? Of that company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like typically ten to twenty percent of the workforce would be sales, yeah. right? So oh, if you look that's at pretty 500 large. Five hundred to two thousand employees. Yeah. yeah like hundred. Yeah, that, that's quite quite large. People.
0: Yeah. From where you are, what what are the next steps? I mean, uh, continuing this early adapter piece for the next. Part of the year, and then take it to the market next year. Is that how you're thinking?
1: Yeah. So we are quite excited with the way product is shaping up. We're very excited mm-hmm. with the feedback from our early set of users. Yeah. The idea is to like uh, improve on product experience. Uh, we haven't hired a salesperson, but we've already hired customer success people. Right. So do, we are investing in that first uh, to make sure that our customers get the value out of the product. Mm. And um, once we are fully ready uh, we'll be launching it uh, for a general ability which we're looking to uh, make it I mean we have a lot of requests for early access hmm. we've hmm. opened up our early access program hmm. we've got like 200 plus companies who are registered for the early access so hmm. we've got a big pipeline to execute as well so hmm. the idea is that we, we run through that as well as we offer it for a general market be ready on the product and GTM side and uh, launch it in 2022 yeah sure. that's, okay. that's what we're aiming for yeah Sounds we great. also raised some funding in between. Uh, okay. We had we a 2 million dollar seed round, 2.15 million dollar seed round we raised in November of 2020. Okay. Um, and yeah we, we probably would hit some milestones around that as well. So uh, how many people in the team today? So it's a lean team. We've got uh, 12 people. Uh, we are a fully remote team. Um, we are a big believers uh, in productivity ourselves, in uh, transparency and data-driven accountability. So from day one, our culture is also the same. Um, we've got people in five countries now. Okay. Uh, we have diversity and inclusion is a big uh, cultural pillar for us as a company, too. Hmm. 50% of our staff workforce is females. Hmm. And we've also got um, six different nationalities working with us already out of the 12 people. So it's it's pretty interesting, diverse uh, workforce, uh, which we're hmm. quite proud of. And um, we're drinking our own beer as well. So, hmm. we use Nectar for Nectar. So, um, we use it for our day-to-day productivity as we start talking to more customers, go through our leads. So, we use our own product as well. Yeah.
0: You know, this dissatisfaction with CRM, uh, which sort of seemed to be your trigger, uh, is is a very well-known peeve. It's it's a pet peeve of many people, right? And a lot of people are trying to solve that problem. I mean, there are a lot yeah. of people who are trying to fix CRM. So... Do you see CRM getting fixed, or do you see that CRM will actually become something else?
1: I think CRM is already part of the system, which is system of record. Mm. So for any business, you would have a system of record, which would most likely be a CRM system, where you'll have all your records around your leads, contacts, opportunities, codes, accounts, mm. and, and everything else, right? So it's a record management system. Mm then you'll need like a system of intelligence on top of it, which basically will make sense out of the data that you have. Uh, And CRM is not the only data source that an organization possesses, right? You have like multiple other data silos that exist. And we already discussed a lot during this podcast today that that data doesn't flow into CRM uh, the way we would all want it to be. Um, So you need like a system of intelligence, which would probably tie into CRM as one of the inputs um, and that system of intelligence would tie back into a system of action, which would probably enable uh, triggers and actions for the users across, again, I think for a distributed team, it makes even more sense uh, to get those triggers, right? I mean, which are not possible with uh, because of the face-to-face interaction that is getting reduced. So you would have a system of record, where, which is where CRM's place would be, uh, and it is getting there. You'll have system of intelligence where you'll have um, companies like Nectar who, who can play a part. And then there'll be system of action, which is where I think a lot of future interesting opportunities would come in. And these could be system of actions which could be built into the existing collaboration systems as well, or systems of communication, right, where you have like a WhatsApp, email, Slack, uh Telegram and whatnot, right? You already have a lot of this communication layer built in, in in the enterprise. So how do you like, or Microsoft Teams for that matter. So how do you like uh, get actions done using those uh, already established communications, right? So that's where those integrations come in. And you can see that pattern as well. I mean, say, if you look at Salesforce acquisition in the last five years, you'll you'll see the trend. Mm-hmm. They are a store record. They acquired a lot of companies to tie together Einstein, which is their uh, intelligence product and then they've acquired Slack now for collaboration. Hmm. So now they, do like, they have a big roadmap to tie everything together and present it as one product to the world and then they have got 200,000 customers to service. So there's an uh, interesting opportunity for startups like Nectar to go and take a small portion of that big pie that exists.
0: Yeah. It is it is that uh, Tom Tunguz's post. I don't know. You you must have looked at that, right? So take take one percent of Salesforce, the dissatisfied part, and you got a billion dollar business, right? Exactly. Yeah. SaaS <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stories is brought to you by Pitchlink, the buyer seller engagement platform. Pitchlink enables high quality interactions between buyers and sellers through presentation and discussion modules. Sellers create personalized sales presentations and reach out to prospects through a non intrusive, buyer qualified engagement. Pitchlink requires no installation or download and holds the entire repository of sales collaterals and buyer seller conversation. Talk to us to know more about how you can engage with customers without intrusion. Call us on 990 216 3132. That is 990 216 3132. Okay, this was great chat and uh, I would I would love to stay in touch and see maybe six months, eight months down the line how things are shaping up and, and uh, continue this dialogue.
1: Definitely. Uh, thanks for having me over Subhanjan and uh, we'll stay in touch with you. Take care. Stay safe. You too. Thank you.
0: We have a fantastic lineup over the next couple of episodes with great conversations including Robert Tukroki, Managing Director for Microsoft Startups MEA, Lazar Rosseran, Co-Founder and CEO of Spoke and many more. Subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you do not miss a single episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you for being with us today and listening to this episode of SaaS Stories. This is where I speak with the dreamers and visionaries who dare to think ahead and build world-class SaaS products. We hope this conversation helped you with the insights that you can go and apply right now to your own SaaS journey. We hope to have you here with us again in the next episode of SaaS Stories. SaaS Stories is brought to you by Pitchlink, the buyer seller engagement platform, and is a BizCast original production.